You're listening to Work Human Radio. And here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to another edition of Work Human Radio, pioneered by Global Force. My name is Mike Wood. I am your host, and I am excited, as always, but for a different reason this time. It is fall in New England. It is my favorite season of the year. The pumpkins are out, the leaves are falling, the temperature's falling, and the flannel is everywhere in our Global Force office. So I am super happy, and I know that Sarah is very happy that the pumpkin spice latte has made an appearance. She's a big fan of fall as well. So this week, we talked to Gary Hamill, who is coming back to Work Human this year. Um, you may remember him as uh, talking about bureaucracy and how we need to move away from it in organizations. Well, this year, he has a new book called Humanocracy, and Sarah Payne was able to catch up with him. And this is part one of our two-part interview with Gary Hamill. And if you enjoy it, which I know you will, I hope that you will join us in Nashville next year for Work Human 2019, where you can see Gary and hopefully meet him in person. And if you are there, don't forget to come over and say hi to me, Mike Wood. I'll be at the Work Human Radio kind of area. Uh, we're still kind of flushing out how that looks this year, but um, it's going to be great. And I love being there and I love meeting listeners. So come say hi. So here's our first part of our two-part interview with Gary Hamill. Enjoy. The word, the word, let me answer the first question. What's, you know, what's the essential difference uh, in my mind between bureaucracy and humanocracy? Um, maybe, maybe a good place to start is that the word bureaucracy is a French word, which is, you might argue, hardly surprising. Um, but it was coined uh, in the early 18th uh, century by a French government minister and, and translated, it means the rule of death. Bureau being a French word for a desk or an office. And so it was really the idea that we build organizations not so much around individuals, but around positions and, and job roles, and that the organization would be, you know, would be run by, by desks, by people in, in particular uh, uh, positions. And so, you know, that's as, as an idea, that's kind of non objectionable. It was a step forward from uh, organizations that were less probably meritocratic, that were uh, often, uh, uh, you know, based on nepotism. And so it was an attempt to bring some, some order to the way we, we uh, 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 ran our organizations. Uh, obviously, over the centuries, the idea of bureaucracy has metastasized in some ways, and, and, and a lot is attached to it that's not very helpful for organizations. But at the core, I see the distinction as this. Um, bureaucracy is essentially a set of of organizational uh, principles and practices uh, that are designed to maximize human compliance. Uh, in, in, in fact, um, uh, Max Weber, who was uh, a sociologist writing the early 20th century, uh, said that uh, bureaucracy is perfected the more it is dehumanized. And the idea was to drive uh, uh, you know, the human element out of our organizations to make them as rational as machines. Uh, Weber also said that bureaucracy was the best known uh, means yet invented uh, to achieving what he called imperative control over human beings. Clearly, control is a very important, you know, necessity in any large organization. Uh, you think about the latest uh, chip in an Apple iPhone, the A12 chip, that is built on a seven nanometer uh, uh, architecture, which requires almost an inconceivable amount of control to uh, create you know, that many millions of, of gates on, on a chip. 
Uh, every time you take a photo with your iPhone, there are up to one trillion uh, processing steps in capturing and, and altering that photo. So control is certainly a necessity, but again, uh, as an ideology, and it is the ideology of bureaucracy, you can think about the ideology as being controlism. That ideology in many ways has, like, like ideologies often do, has slipped the moorings of common sense. And control has become an objective almost in its own right. So I would distinguish, you know, bureaucracy as as a way of of maximizing compliance with humanocracy, which is similarly a set of organizational principles and practices, but uh, there to 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 maximize the capacity of human beings to uh, develop and use their unique capabilities. So for me, the distinction is between maximizing control and maximizing human contribution. Um, ideally, these are not counterposed. You still need a, a lot of control in an organization, but humanocracy starts with the idea that, that, that the organization is built around human beings, not around positions, not around titles, not around job descriptions. And, and the goal is to build organizations where people are encouraged and able to bring the best of themselves to work every day. The second question you asked was, why do so many companies default to a bureaucratic management model? I think there are probably three reasons there. First, bureaucracy as a way of organizing human beings is familiar. Um, most of us uh, have grown up in and around organizations that fit the bureaucratic mold. Uh, Power is vested in positions. Um, authority trickles down. Uh, big leaders uh, set strategy. Uh, managers uh, um, uh, define tasks and um, um, uh, dole, dole out tasks, dole out work, and, and, and measure uh, performance. Uh, individuals compete for the scarce resource of promotion. And we use extrinsic rewards, primarily money, to try to align uh, individuals with organizational goals. So that's a very familiar model, and it's hard for most of us to imagine an alternative. The analogy I've sometimes used is that when the uh, Spanish and Portuguese explorers first came to the so-called New World, uh, they found that the Native Americans had not yet invented the wheel. And so I'm sure to those uh, Native Americans, the first time they saw a wheel, you know, you kind of slap your forehead and say, like, gee, why didn't we think of that? But they had they, they had no, no, no understanding of that simple uh, uh, mechanical device. And so I think, first of all, we default to bureaucracy because that's what we know. And in that sense, it seems uh, uh, safe. I think the second reason is that it works, at least after a fashion. Uh, the fact is, as a as a as a social technology, bureaucracy was invented, as I said, to allow us to achieve high levels of control, which you need when you are, uh, you know, delivering complex products and services. Uh, it is also a means of coordination uh, and uh, a way of guaranteeing consistency in decision making. So all of those things are of great value: control and coordination and consistency. And so, again, it's a struggle to understand, well, how might I achieve those through other means? Uh, and, of course, the focus of my work is on 
uh, how do we get the blessings of bureaucracy, the control, the coordination, the consistency, without necessarily uh, paying paying the cost uh, that often come with bureaucracy in terms of uh, overhead and inertia, inflexibility, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, the third reason I think that the bureaucratic model has been so persistent is that in a way it's it's a giant multiplayer game in which millions of people have built their careers. And so they've learned uh, how to uh, accumulate and use bureaucratic power. Uh, they've learned how to climb the pyramid. Um, and many of those individuals are reluctant to see the game changed. Now, as, as a game, if I could use that metaphor, you know, bureaucracy uh, produces a lot of good things, but it often rewards behaviors that are perhaps not very helpful. Um, it rewards people who are very good at deflecting blame. It rewards people who are good at hoarding information. Uh, it rewards people who uh, will often say no when they're asked to uh, uh, collaborate and simply focus on their task, their job, and their role. Uh, it often rewards individuals who are very good at managing up, uh, at uh, reading their, their boss's moods, at understanding uh, the uh, prejudices of their leaders and uh, shaping their behaviors and often shaping the facts to fit uh, the, uh, you know, to fit the, the mood and, and, and the beliefs of uh, the people they work for. So, uh, you know, but, but in any case, if you've learned to play that game very well uh, and you've mastered the bureaucratic arts, you're not necessarily enthusiastic about that changing. And, you know, it would be a little bit like asking LeBron James, uh, a basketball star, and saying, you know, you're excellent at basketball, but we're going to change the game to volleyball. And uh, LeBron James probably wouldn't be, you know, too excited about that. So there's, right. for all those reasons, there's an inbuilt resistance. It's like, it's hard to give up something that's familiar. You worry that if you change it in any radical way, what's going to happen to the necessary control and coordination and consistency, because we certainly can't lose that. And by the way, and perhaps most importantly, what happens to my power? What happens to all of the skills and tools I've developed and learned to, to, to succeed in this environment? So, you know, Deeply embedded social structures are hard to change. That was true for um, aristocracy uh, 300 years ago. It was true for slavery 200 years ago. It is true for patriarchy yet today. So, you know, it's it's not surprising for all those reasons that many organizations have have and let me say many CEOs have have uh, stood up and professed. Uh, uh, to be uh, enemies of bureaucracy and have professed the desire to change it, but very few have, have succeeded. Do you think some so, would the change knowing the cost of letting bureaucracy fester? I know that you've done some work on calculating that cost. Yes, indeed. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, normally um, we pay attention as, as leaders, as managers, we pay attention to the things that we can measure. And uh, while some of the costs of bureaucracy, like excess layers of management, are visible, they, they show up on, uh, on the P&L, most of the costs are invisible. 
it, it doesn't mean that they're not real. It just means we don't have accounting systems that can measure them. So if you think about the 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 friction and decision making, if you, if a decision has to get multiple layers of approval, um, and that extends the, the time to get a decision made, there's a cost to that. Uh, if if data gets manipulated and shaped to fit the biases of leaders, that distortion has a cost. Uh, if employees feel discouraged from taking initiative or taking small risks, that has a cost. Uh, if internal boundaries and silos make it difficult to reallocate resources around new ideas, that has a cost. Uh, the fact that many, many people in large organizations have inward-facing roles, that they're not really uh, directly responsible to customers, that has a cost. Uh, the fact that a lot of time is spent in, in political maneuvering, that has a cost. But all of those costs uh, uh, are, are pretty much uh, invisible. In the same way, a decade or two ago, uh, environmental costs were invisible. Very few companies 20 years ago uh, measured their impact on the natural environment. Very few organizations uh, reported on their environmental impact. Now many do. So uh, certainly I believe that one of the first steps uh, you have to take in defeating bureaucracy is to start to, 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 to benchmark it, to get a baseline on how much this is costing us. And so we created something called uh, the Bureaucratic Mass Index, uh, and, uh, and we uh, have used this survey inside of organizations. We also uh, did a survey with uh, more than 10,000 respondents uh, with the Harvard Business Review. And what you find is not necessarily surprising, but it starts. And, and, it, and, it, and it challenges you to confront that reality and do something about it. So, for example, we found that in, in large organizations with more than 5,000 people, 79% of the people who, who, who took this survey said that bureaucracy significantly slows decision-making. 68% uh, said that in their organization, new ideas, which are, of course, the lifeblood of, of any organization, but new ideas are met with skepticism or outright resistance. And perhaps most, most worryingly, 76% uh, said that political behaviors highly influence who gets ahead. Not confidence, but your ability at playing political games inside the organization. And that is an extraordinarily corrosive thing. If you believe that that is really how you get ahead, of, if you see that role modeled every day and you see it's not necessarily the smartest people, the most uh, meritorious, uh, the highest performers, but it's people who've mastered, as I call it, the bureaucratic game, you know, that you know, a very uh, kind of a very sad commentary on organizational life. So I think you have to start to measure these things and then measure them year by year by year and, and charge uh, those around you and yourself with the responsibility of, of gradually reducing uh, the cost of bureaucratic drag. Well, so our listeners and our readers, a lot of them are HR leaders. Uh, so how can HR leaders in particular help their organization move away from bureaucracy, you know, you just talked about what kinds of people get ahead. Um, is it, does it have to do with performance management, talent management? Uh, what would be your advice to those people? I think several things. 
first, I think you have to get deeply acquainted with some of the alternate models. And there are other ways of organizing human beings at scale that are that are non-bureaucratic. Just to give you some quick summary of a few a few such organizations, you think about um, the group of individuals around the world that's built Linux, which is now by far the world's most uh, used uh, software. It's at the heart of every Android mobile phone. It's at the heart of uh, virtually every web server. And so here's here's a very complex uh, a piece of software with more than 25 million lines of code that was built with nothing that looks like a formal management structure. Uh, there's certainly people in the Linux community who have more, more influence, uh, more, I would say, informal power than others, but nobody appointed those people vice presidents. Their, their power comes from their service to the community. Uh, I think of uh, a Chinese company, Hire, which is spelled H-A-I-E-R, which is the largest maker of appliances in the world. And I'll have a long article on them in the November uh, issue of Harvard Business Review. But here's a company with more than 70,000 people that runs with three organizational levels uh, where the entire organization has been divided into more than 4,000 micro enterprises, each with about 15 or 20 people in those small organizations. Each of those teams has its own P&L, a real P&L, not a set of synthetic KPIs, you know, ginned up uh, by, by finance or planning, but, but they have a real P&L. Every one of those micro enterprises can uh, contract or not with other micro enterprises across the company. And at higher, even HR is simply another uh, another microenterprise, and it sells its services across the organization. And if uh, units don't want to buy HR services internally, they can buy them externally. So I think you 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 to 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 start down the path of uh, uninstalling bureaucracy, you first have to measure it. Second, you have to believe that there are alternate models, and you have to dig into those and understand what makes them work. Um, I think thirdly, particularly with HR, I think there's a change in attitude, perhaps that's required, if I can be so bold, not being an HR professional. But I think, um, you know, when, when we look at the data and the evidence and the survey, uh, obviously a lot of people are not very happy with a lot of a lot of line executives employees are not very happy with uh, the HR function. They're not sure that it adds a lot of value. They're unconvinced that it's truly responsive to their needs. It often seems that this rather imperial uh, rulemaking body that is somewhat disconnected from you know their day-to-day -day, uh, reality. And when you look at the advice that's offered to HR leaders on how to change that, I would argue the advice is often incredible, incredibly incremental. And uh, for example, Harvard Business Review ran an article a couple of years ago. I think it was, in fact, I think it was a whole a, a, a series of articles and a special issue around reinventing HR. But if you go back and look at the advice that was offered, you know, a one one big piece of advice was that the 
the H the, the head of HR needs to have a position that is equivalent to uh, 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 the CFO and needs to be part of a triumvirate with the CFO and the CEO helping to you know um, look forward and and think about what's next. Uh, other advice you know is that uh, HR needs to become more professional or needs to uh, you know become more strategic. And I think all of that is true. But I would argue uh, that probably the, the, the deepest change we need is for HR to really see itself as a service function and, and that its goal is to serve internal clients and to help them achieve business success by finding the right people, by improving the entire HR uh, system and functions. But I think, um, you know, I'm not sure how often HR people really believe that their primary responsibility is not up in the organization, but rather down. And I think, um, you know, it's a radical idea, but I think uh, internal line executives ought to have the power to fire or hire HR as an internal service provider. I don't think, you know, whether it's IT or finance or HR or planning, I don't think that any internal service provider should be a monopoly. I think they should all be subject to external competition. And uh, that's either, you know, that can happen either by letting operating units, uh, uh, you know, hire outside services on their own to help them with HR uh, tasks. Uh, or it could be at a minimum extensively benchmarking the internal HR function to really ensure that they are providing competitive products and services. Or if you go, to the extreme that hire has gone to, you make them their own P&L, and they either win and attract customers or they don't. Um, one of the interesting things that hire has done, which I find exemplary, is that all internal service providers, so this includes R&D and HR and uh, other, other uh, internal vendors, as it were, when any of those writes a contract with another microenterprise, so let's say I'm in the case of hire, I'm running a small microenterprise that's that uh, uh, designs and sells three-door refrigerators. So if I need help from HR, I write a contract with HR for the sort of help I'm going to need. It has a a a, a price in it for that help, but every internal contract has a performance clause in it. And those internal providers, again, whether it's R&D, finance, HR, they only get a bonus if the product succeeds in the marketplace, if that ultimate product succeeds in the marketplace. So every single employee has a substantial part of their compensation at risk, depending on marketplace outcome. And I think that is, that is right. You know, every organization lives or dies by what it does for its customers. And to have any part of the organization that's largely insulated from that, that, that compensation is insulated from market outcomes or mostly insulated. Maybe there's a small performance benefit, a bonus depending on the performance of the whole organization. But I think that that link between the value we're creating as HR through the businesses for ultimate customers needs to be calculated and needs to have a substantial impact on the compensation of HR professionals. So, you know, for me, if you want to kind of move to a post-bureaucratic organization, HR needs to 
stand up and, and be an exemplar in that regard and ask, how do we reduce the bureaucratic load on uh, uh, those around us? How do we uh, um, put our compensation at risk depending on the value we are creating for our internal uh, uh, customers? And how do we measure our value um, not around compliance or the number of lawsuits that we avoid or, or the degree to which you know, policies are followed, but how do we start to measure our value in terms of the impact great HR practices make to our ultimate customers? I hope you enjoyed the first part of our interview with Gary Hamill, who will be returning to the Work Human stage next year. Um, I hope to see all of you there. If you have not registered yet, you should register and take advantage of the low rates before they go up. We just announced that Cy Wakeman will be coming back, another fan favorite of ours and of mine personally. Um, also, we just announced the agenda. So if you go to workhuman.com, you will see the agenda. We have eight content tracks. We have a lot of great speakers that we hope you'll be able to see. So get to workhuman.com, register today, and you can lock in your seat for next year's big event. If you're wondering how you can stay up to date with all the latest Work Human announcements, you can go to the website workhuman.com and sign up to be a Work Human Insider. And please join our LinkedIn community group. It's the Work Human Community Forum. You'll find it right on LinkedIn. We have almost 5,000 people in there, and everybody's sharing the latest news and their insights about uh, working human and making work a better place. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Work Human, and feel free to message us with anything. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening to part one of our two-part interview with Gary Hamill, and we'll see you in the next episode. Work Human Radio is brought to you by Globoforce pioneers of the work-human movement. Globoforce helps make work more human for millions of people and organizations worldwide. Learn more by visiting Globoforce.com and join the work-human movement by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and the work-human community forum on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening to Work Human Radio.